0: Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 131 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Shazam. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist.
1: Shazam 2 Rise of the Gods.
0: Ooh! <laughs>
2: is is
1: that the oh, sequel wow. to Shazam? Ooh, I think it is, but no, like my Shazam knowledge is being put to the test.
2: No, no, you can't look this up. This is no. this is what will make or break our podcast.
0: Shazam Two. This one has the girl from West Side Story.
3: Yeah, that's a better title.
0: <laughs> Hi everybody, it's good to good to pod with you today, guys. I'm a bit thrown off because on the way out here, my daughter ran up to me and screamed at the shoes I was wearing and then pointed to another pair of shoes and said, blue, blue, blue. And I had to change my shoes.
1: Oh, you've been missing her all day today. She's been playing librarian. Tell me how oh. she's been doing it. She's literally been running over. My mom has been taking care of her today. Mm-hmm. And so she's just been running, grabbing books from the shelf. Not from the to though. Yeah. But just tossing them onto a huge pile that's been in front of mom. And I think she wants her to read them all. But they vary from Alison Bechdel uh-huh. to the play for Fleabag, My Years of Rest oh. and Relaxation, uh-huh. a collection of Hellboy comics. <laughs>
3: Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Maggie is not ready for Hellboy. I'll just I'm just going to say it. I'm sorry.
0: This is really interesting because last week I had a half day and I decided on that half day Friday to take Maggie to the central library, like the L.A. big central library that Susan Orlean wrote. Oh, yeah. about. And the children's section is amazing. But we were the only ones there. Um, and so she was just right. running up and down the, the halls and like having fun. And we were making a big stack of books that we had to check out one by one because we did self-check. Check out. So maybe that's what inspired
1: her. Ah, Ah. She has been doing a good tour of libraries of LA recently. Yeah. We also saw the Cerritos library shout it out.
0: Oh yeah. That one is crazy. There's an aquarium and a full size dinosaur skeleton. If
1: you've never seen it before, Cerritos is a town in Southern California that's kind of LA. If people don't live in LA, you can just say it's LA, but it's not. But they also have a bunch of car dealerships, meaning they have a bunch of taxes that they don't know what to do with. So they decided to make the best library in in the world for some reason.
0: It's pretty cool. Maggie was first excited just because there was an escalator that she could go up and down and then she saw the dinosaur and her mind was blown.
1: That's right. This escalator goes up and down.
3: (laughs) It seems a bit random, doesn't it? It's like, all right, this is going to be the sweetest library ever, said the nine-year-old playing in the library. And there's going to be a dinosaur.
1: Yeah, they have a dinosaur. There's a, a space exhibit, a lighthouse inside it. Wait, wait, I get the
2: first two, but the lighthouse? <laughs> Are kids like, I want to be a paleontologist, an astronaut, or a lighthouse keeper? I,
0: if I had to guess, mm-hmm. I think it's related to the aquarium because they have a fake pier that runs along the aquarium that you can sit on. Wow. It goes to this like little lighthouse that's open open in the middle and you can sit and read books inside. So So like Bailey Street.
1: Yeah, so if you're like a lonely little five-year-old that just wants to read books all day and not be disturbed.
0: Like, well, our daughter's only two, but this other girl came up and tried to play with her and she just like kind of ignored her and sat down and started going through books. So...
3: Amazing. Well, I'll I'll have you know you guys are bragging about, you know, LA libraries. The Arcata Public Library is, I don't know, maybe a thousand feet square and it shares a parking lot with the police station. So there you go. Ooh.
0: Ooh.
2: Woodstock Library is very nice, but it's moving. So we'll have to see what the new
3: one's like. Mm. Oh, um, speaking of landmarks and uh, and Los Angeles, I wanted to ask you guys a question. I recently read and enjoyed the White Hot book that I believe Bailey has already gotten a copy of, uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Um, it had one of the, the most specific landmark drops that I personally know really well, and if you've lived in this neighborhood, you might know it too. There was a sign in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles uh, for a foot clinic, and it was a spinning sign. And on one side of the sign, there was a foot that was really happy and healthy. And the other side of the sign, the the foot had like a black eye, and it was on crutches, and it was sad. And it was just this very distinctive sign. And when she dropped that in this book, I was like, oh my, I'm just transported right there. I've never known a reference that called to me that strongly. And I wanted to know, have you guys ever had an experience like that reading?
0: I will say that there are a lot of books set in Maine, and some mm. of these people that are writing about Maine, I don't think have ever been to Maine.
1: Stephen King has never been to Maine.
0: No. Well, Stephen King is writing about a certain type of Maine, It's certain area of Maine. What we
1: call the haunted part. The
0: haunted part. So... There was a book I read called Delirium by Lauren Oliver. It was like a YA dystopian one that she clearly had Mm -hmm. been to Portland, Maine. Good job. She understood. She referenced like Congress Street and other areas where I was like, you've been there. But most of the time, it's people saying like trash, like instead of the Portland Press Herald, it's called like the Portland Bugle. And I'm like, get out of here.
1: No, it's the Bangor Daily News.
0: (laughs) So I would say normally a lot of people write about Maine, but not a lot of people get it right. So...
3: Mm seems like you had the opposite experience from what i described but okay thanks bailey
0: well i'm just i'm 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 piggybacking by anti-piggybacking
3: gotcha well to piggyback the way you toby
2: intended um (laughs) i had one recently that i'm that i'm uh that's that's killing me that i can't remember but the one that i remember most strongly actually i think i mentioned on the podcast when it happened because it was in a brief history of seven killings by marlon james and literally one of the characters lives in a numbered street address in bedside Brooklyn which is next door to where Jillian lived for three years literally Um, to the to the number and then in that same book a whole bunch of action happens a block away from the first apartment I lived in in New York like down again to the street like name-checked the cross streets so that was my version of
3: that as you intended Toby, unlike Bailey. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for following the prompt. You know, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't think it would be Bailey who would go rogue off the prompt. It's just so strange to me. But
1: to speak very specifically to the Happy Foot, Sad Foot sign, mm. uh, that actually has popped up in a few other things, too. That's popped up in... Um, You're the worst. You're the worst under the Silver Lake, because it's a huge Silver Lake.
0: You can also buy t-shirts mm-hmm. with the Happy Foot, was, Sad Foot on it.
1: But also, there was a whole thing that if you were driving through Silver Lake, it would determine if you had a good day or a bad day, depending if you saw the
3: Happy Foot or the Sad Foot. That's it tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow
0: oh first of all two things number one when we do our orcs and elves we should say happy feet sad feet for this episode yes number two the sad foot of it all is that the podiatrist moved his office and yep. they had to cover yeah. up the sign r.i.p oh
3: wait have they not have they still not removed it it's just covered with like a tarp no it's down. when i left la it was just covered with a tarp okay. it's down
1: and it's funny because he thought that a bunch of people would follow him it's like oh they weren't coming here for the sign they're coming here for great foot care it's like no they're coming here for no, the sign it's the sign
0: <laughs> um on that note i've got some shame
2: <laughs> i was wondering if we were just going to skirt past it or if it was going to come up
0: <laughs> it's not crazy it's actually something that i meant to say on the last episode that i forgot because it's birthday shame it, um i got three books from dylan's brother kenji that i forgot to mention on the podcast two of them are the first two parts of a graphic novel series that was based on a web comic called lore olympus and okay guys this is 100 hmm. percent my jam picture if you will the story of Persephone and Hades, okay? Greek myth.
3: We know it. We love it.
0: We know it. We love it. Told in like modern times in graphic novel form with like, Fun, cutesy characters with lots of colorful images like that people cosplay. Yes, 100% my jam, right? Um, And so I just breezed through the first two, which is another reason why I didn't mention it because I went through them so fast. So they're not even really shame and I can't wait for the next one. So thank you, Kenji, for that. He also gave me a book called Gideon the Ninth.
3: Oh, Bailey, that's so funny. I was thinking about how much I screwed up buying you uh, a book that you already had. Yeah. And I was like, I should have bought her Gideon the Ninth. What am I doing (laughs) I literally thought that earlier this week. I was like, I, I'm such an idiot. I should have bought her Gideon the Ninth.
0: I don't know much about it besides that, like, pe- people like it and I believe it's fantasy.
3: Toby, do I have to read Gideon 1 through the 8th first to get it? <laughs> oh, yeah. You need to know all the lore. No, this is the first one in a series. I believe she's written two. Tamzin Muir, I believe is her name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I haven't read the second one yet. But Bailey, just it's really simple. It's just the concept is there's like these necromancers, but they like live in space inside a giant asteroid. And there's like eight different kingdoms and they're all at a war with each other and they have to like send a delegation to another spaceship that all makes sense right
0: is gideon in the ninth kingdom
3: uh yes they're in the ninth kingdom and it may or may not be a uh, um, enemies to lovers thing
0: so yeah so that's my shame that's not too bad does anybody else have any shame
3: i have no shame no i did
2: buy the new dungeons and dragons Spelljammer set the day it came out Ooh. so i can get the special new covers does that count as shame no.
0: Cool. It counts as
2: cool. That counts as pride.
0: <laughs> I think that's good for you, Andrew. I think it's important in this time, you know, when everything's hard to like take joy and stuff, even if it's buying things that your husband doesn't approve of and is like, why are you going to all the Joannes and Michaels in Los Angeles? No. Nope. And it's just important. Okay. I feel
3: like we've derailed from my thing and gone <laughs> to yours, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Andrew, I have something to say about Spelljammer, which is that I hear there's a bunch of weird new races that you can be. I think you can be like a space hippo creature. Is that right? Yep. That's called a gif. Well, there you go. But I would also like to hear about another strange animal. I'd like to hear a little bit about a goldfinch.
0: Ooh, that is an excellent transition.
2: So yes, the book I read this for this podcast is called The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. may have heard of it. It won the Pulitzer. So yeah, let's jump right in. Um, this is a big book, so I'll try to keep my thoughts focused. Um, here is a little bit about the book, To wet the Appetite. Donna Tartt's epic novel, The Goldfinch, follows Theo Decker, a boy cut adrift in a huge world after his mother's sudden death, as he tries to navigate a world full of roadblocks and holes dug by his actions and the, those of others, all while carrying with him a stolen painting charitably valued as priceless. It's a novel that touches on almost all aspects of being alive, loving, hurting those you love, hurting yourself, dying, healing, and ultimately begs the question not only of what determines our paths in the world, but why we bother to walk any path at
3: all.
0: That's beautifully put.
3: I can jump in real quick and just say um, I'll be tagging along with this, Andrew. I read this mm, maybe nine years ago, but I yeah, I have some distinct memories of it. But I'm really interested to hear what you thought.
0: And um, any pages that are dying to know, I also attempted to read this one, ran out of time because I've been spending too much time buying embroidery floss, got to page (laughs) 462 out of 771. So, you know, I'm pretty well into it. I'm excited to hear your whole thoughts on the whole book, Andrew.
2: I won't go into spoilers, but I will give you a little more context for the plot after that logline, if that's what you want. Yes, please. So, to put a little more context for those coming in blind on this, none of this is spoiler territory. It's either established on the back matter or in the first few paragraphs/chapters. But Theo's mother dies in a in a tragic accident that I won't get into too much. Um, and during that accident, Theo also somehow acquires a painting that is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Like we're talking priceless value, important to art history as well as like Dutch culture, you know, typical things that happen to kids. So that's sort of your initial premise. And then the book follows Theo throughout his life as he, um, because his dad is also not in the picture to start, as he bounces around from temporary caregivers, grows up, gets very into certain illicit substances, which I'll let Donna Tart talk to you about over and over again, and grows up. Ultimately, we do get sort of not a full picture of a life, but we get his childhood. And then there's a time jump, and we get the second half of the book, which is his early adulthood and um, sort of following the repercussions from that single incident when placed against the people he runs into in his life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was an excellent summary and so just tiniest more detail, because I want to get into orcs and elves. But uh, this happens, it starts in New York City. Andrew, and I'm sorry. Sorry. Happy Feet, Sad Feet. Happy Feet, please. Sad Feet, please. Oh, I'm so sorry. Happy Feet, Sad Feet. I really want to get into Happy Feet, Sad Feet. But one final piece of context. The book starts in New York City. It goes a lot of different places, but a lot of it is also like this boy who comes from sort of nothing navigating high society New York. And, and that's another aspect of it. If that interests you, that's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So more will come out, but let's go into the happy feet, sad feet. And let's start with the happy ones, the Elijah Woods, the happy feet. <laughs> so this book is huge in scale, um, which is really cool. But what makes that something that becomes a happy foot, not just something to mark, is that it does this huge scale while remaining really rooted in the life of one person. And what I came to thinking of it was it's sort of epic in its specificity because it, yeah, like so many big, crazy things happen and so many big things are explored, but it's all always through the lens of this one person and the like hyper-specificity of his daily life. And like we jump around in his life a lot, and you're not getting a day-by-day breakdown of every day of his life, obviously. But you are sort of getting a day-by-day breakdown of a lot of his life. And that's it was a really sort of interesting way of storytelling, uh, a way of sort of blowing out a big picture of a huge world while like still giving you these everyday observations that were granular and sort of tasty.
0: Yeah, definitely. It, it starts out as almost like a bed-to-bed story. Like, you'd get the whole life of Theo Decker.
2: Yeah. For sure. And then it, it does that more or less throughout the book. And then as you get a little older, it, it jumps around a little more. Um, but still, it is ultimately like incredibly specific, but incredibly grand at the same time. Mm-hmm. Moving on to sort of another one, but sort of related. A lot of the pull quotes and the like praise that we've seen of, of the of the book calls it sort of Dickensian. And I definitely feel that in that scale that we talked about, um, but especially in the richness of each of the characters that you run into, especially like the minor ones or the ones that aren't the main characters, like every one is fleshed out with more detail than I think most authors would give people or even need to give people. But it's sort of a treat that it's there, if that makes sense. Like characters yeah. that don't get a lot of page time, you still like learn a lot about them and you learn what they look like on a day to day and you learn what their interests are and, and whatnot. And like even down to like physical descriptions, Tart is really generous with that.
3: Nice. Yeah, I, I I remember a big pro for me of this book being kind of what you're talking about, like the granularity of everything. I remember reading it and being and thinking like, you know, those like hyper realistic art pieces that people do where it's like, you know, a drawing of someone's face and you can see like the little tiny hairs coming out of their face. You know what I mean? Mm. The, the whole book to me read like that. Like everything was kind of crystalline and really intense. And- yeah, it's sort of like a, a 4K book or like an 8K yes, book. Yes, there we go. <laughs> what a much better and more succinct way of saying what I what I tried to say.
2: Both of those things are really cool. Like this hyper specificity, the huge scale. Um, and that's based on a bedrock of really fantastic writing. So you like know from the beginning you're in the hands of an absolute pro. I haven't read any of Tartt's other work. She's only, this is only her third novel. I think she only has three novels. Yep. The yep, uh, yep, yep. Little Friend and Secret Life.
0: The Secret History.
2: The Secret History. Secret History. Secret Life of Bees? <laughs> yeah, that's her. <laughs> secret History and and um, and the little friend. Um, so I was coming into this completely tartless before. and Now I'm tartful. <laughs> um, so I had never experienced her writing before. And uh, dang, she can do it. Um, and I want to give you two quotes. One that is like a paragraph that shows, I think, a really strong tart paragraph. And then one tiny little line that I think is an example of encapsulating a great sort of very true moment of people which is what you can get in this huge book. You can get both those like sort of elaborate observations of emotion and then also like just very true sort of quips. So first one's on page 55. It's the beginning of the second chapter of the book. When I was little, four or five, my greatest fear was that someday my mother might not come home from work. Addition and subtraction were useful mainly insofar as they helped me track her movements. How many minutes till she left the office? How many minutes to walk from the office to the subway? And even before I learned to count, I'd been obsessed with learning to read a clock face, desperately studying the occult circle crammed on the paper plate that once mastered would unlock a pattern of her comings and goings. Usually she was home just when she said she'd be. So if she was 10 minutes late, I began to fret any later and I sat on the floor by the front door of the apartment like a puppy left alone too long, straining to hear the rumble of the elevator coming up to our floor.
0: Yeah, I like that quote. Oh, I remember that quote from the book.
2: Because I don't know, I feel like mo- a lot of kids would, would relate to that emotion. And then I feel like she just crystallized it very well.
0: Mm-hmm. Even the specificity of the paper plate. It's like, yeah, you're right, Donna. tardy.
2: <laughs> and then on a different note, and this is far later in the book, and I, I won't give too much context for what's happening because that might be a slight spoiler, but this is on page 442. But suffice it to say, Theo has run into someone from his past who wants him to, to meet up again with him after sort of chance running into him on the street. Um, and he says come see mother he said i know she really wants to see you now i said when i realized he meant just that instant oh do please come if not now later don't promise just like we all do on the street it would mean so much to her and i really liked that sentence and it stuck out to me because who among us hasn't just seen somebody on the street and said oh my gosh we should get coffee sometime we're definitely gonna do that and never seen that person again and i thought that oh, was yeah. just a nice yeah. crystallization of that
0: i do that all the time it's almost the worst yeah. when they actually call you on it and you're like oh i thought we agreed we weren't really gonna do it
2: i thought there was a social contract
3: that we didn't have to do anything about this (laughs) guys you just have to be like me just move move to the middle of nowhere where you don't know anybody it never happens to you (laughs) that's fair but so those are just two
2: small examples of of tart as a writer i think she's very good i'm definitely interested in checking out her other work now based on this um one last sort of happy foot to throw in here while it is definitely definitely not a laugh a minute or a romp it doesn't feel (laughs) like a nearly 800 page book which it is so that's a very strong happy foot for the most part it feels completely justified in its length because of the depth that length also like gets from it it gets to be that long because it actually has the depth under it to justify it i will say for the most part
0: mm, Ooh. interesting
2: but so all those together this was just a very rich reading experience lots of happy feet dancing along like penguins upon the ice
3: Uh, Andrew, I'm really interested to hear your um, sad feet because I think I agree 100% with all of your happy feet. And I had some sad feet about this book too. So it sounds like maybe you have some sad feet. I do have some sad feet.
2: There were stretches of this book that super dragged for me. Like mostly it wasn't major. I felt like certain elements that were getting like really detailed, great descriptions either didn't warrant that level of description or, and this is more specifically to the point, were underlining a point that had not only already been made, but had already been underlined already bolded italicized all the things you can do with your hotkeys in microsoft word and then it just like went back and did it again yeah yeah like my reaction to this is specifically to some of the rougher things that happened to theo it's around the midpoint of the book that i felt this note specifically a lot where i was like i get that this is really hard i get that really hard things are happening to him but this is like the same chapter just told three different ways which i guess is maybe a commentary but it did affect my reading experience
0: andrew Obviously, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know. But I will just say that the part you're describing is, I think, what slowed me down. Because I was like, wow, why is this part so long? Because it's it's definitely... A dark part.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think based on what you said your page count is, you would have just sort of come out of that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And another sad foot, and this is sort of my last sad foot because again, happy feet majority. And it's an extension of a similar point, but the ramp up to the end also in particular, while the end was ultimately satisfying to me and I I won't get into that at all, uh, but the like ramp up to it, super, super dragged. I actually, as I was (laughs) reading, like took my free hand and made a hurry up gesture and I noticed myself (laughs) doing it and I was like, I'm going to say that on the podcast because I don't know that I've ever done that while reading before.
0: Well, physically reading oh, the book, man. you were like,
2: well, I was
3: physically reading the book and I took my other hand and like did the hurry up gesture. <laughs> well, that's actually funny because uh, I, I think I had the exact same sentiment and objectively what's going to be really hard not to do spoilers here, but objectively the, the events toward the end of the book are more thrilling or like should be more thrilling based on like what she's trying to do. But yeah, it still drags and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's
2: part of it because she gives you a, a like a, a taste of sort of thriller for a minute and then goes yeah. back to what she's been doing and I think that's probably why it, it feels that stark. Um,
0: I don't know if I'm now excited or worried about the end of this book based on no, no.
2: how far you've gone you've got to power through and I think you'll be satisfied with where you end up but just know that there might be a section where you end up doing a hurry up gesture.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: Please don't 100 years of solitude this one Bailey.
0: Oh no I won't.
2: Yeah. yeah and again like it's an 800 page book so that I felt like it clipped along this way is Already like a huge point in its, and it's an 800 page book that's written to be like thought provoking and like dense. It's not, I don't want to, this isn't me trying to like disparage, you know, Harry Potter or like sort of more candy books that also have that high page count. But like, this is a dense literary novel that also somehow clips along with a huge page count. So it's mostly a happy foot, but I, it makes the parts that drag stick out that much more. Yep. And so ultimately what I came to was four stars and I was conflicted about it because it's an impressive book, like wonderful even, but I don't know that I can see reading it again. I do think back to when things either felt to, gratuitous to me or they started to drag and I just I can't give it that full full five stars because even when I even when I say I'm going to read a book again sometimes I'm lying for the most of the, part of the time <laughs> like for the most of, of the it's like a, it's a generous lie that I like it's it's um wishful thinking and I tell myself I might hold on to this because I'll read it again this one I like I don't know I'm really glad I read it but I, I don't think I would I would read it
3: again yeah but yeah Andrew I'd come down exactly the same as you four stars an incredible book but yeah there are low points and I can't say it's like a five-star book,
0: Andrew. I think you should you should really read the secret history.
3: Yeah, that I have read that one, and that one is better and really good.
0: Yeah, that one it, it has a lot of the happy feet you described, and it's set you know it's murder in like a Latin club at a exclusive college. So I mean, who doesn't like that?
2: Mm, as someone who committed several murders in his Latin club and <laughs> <his> exclusive college, <laughs> I think it might be too close to home. I'm just kidding, guys. I was not in a Latin club. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, all right. Well, that's an excellent review, Andrew. I think a lot of people will agree with you. Um, and Toby, do you have any facts on our favorite tart, Miss Donna Tart? Oh, boy. <laughs> do you have any tart, sweet tarts?
3: Uh, yeah, um, I do. Um, some of these facts are from good old Wikipedia, and some of them are from Bookster, that's B-O-O-K-S-T-R dot com, from an article entitled, I Heart Donna Tart." And they're kind of mixed in with each other. So that's why I gave you both of those at the same time. Donna Louise Tart, great middle name, uh, was born December 23rd, 1963. Um, her three novels are The Secret History, The Little Friend, and The Goldfinch, which we've mentioned. She won the W.H. Smith Literary Award for The Little Friend in 2003 and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for The Goldfinch in 2014. Mm. She was born uh, as the elder of two daughters in Greenwood, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, and she was raised in the nearby town of Granada. Um, her 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 dad was a rockabilly musician um, who turned into a kind of a service station owner and also a local politician. Sounds like a kind of a character. Um, And her mother was a secretary. Um, And both of her parents were really avid readers to the point where it says here that her mother would read while driving. Oh God,
0: I've done, I've done that. You've
3: done that. Wait, wait, wait. Okay.
2: Cut that from the podcast, because you could be arrested.
0: Uh, Hypothetically, um, allegedly, let's just say that there's (laughs) a lot of traffic in LA, and sometimes you're just sitting at a um, a stoplight for a while, and this is before smartphones. Hypothetically, okay, I've seen allegedly. La La
2: Land. I understand that things happen during Stop Traffic.
3: <laughs> so uh, it, she started writing early uh, in 1968. At the age of five, she wrote her first poem. Cute. And in 1976, when she was 13, she published for the first time when a sonnet she wrote was included in the Mississippi Review. In high school, she was a, a freshman cheerleader for the basketball team oh. and worked in the library, in the public library. Uh, and there's a really uh, interesting story about her going to cheerleading camp, which took place. Place in a sorority house in the area, um, there was a. Uh, There's this thing called the Sunshine Box, uh, which is like you're supposed to put, you know, lovely notes in there. You know, um, it says here like epigrams dear to their hopeful hearts, apothegms of uplift that's a crazy word, uh, treasured most about life and lemons and lemonade. Uh, And she would put stuff in there uh, by Nietzsche and Sartre, uh, some classic quotes like, God is dead and we have killed him and hell is other people. Um, So imagine like, you know, a commentary box, um, you know, where everyone's anonymous and they kept accusing her and she never uh, confessed. That's
2: awesome and something I would have done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I picture Wednesday Adams on the cheerleading squad, but also, yeah, yeah, Andrew, you should probably mention your, your softball shenanigans.
2: Yeah, well, so I play on a softball team and we get walk-up music and I enjoy the people yes. that I'm playing against to feel emotional that I'm coming up versus pumping myself up because I'm confident in my own abilities. So I enjoy <laughs> rocking Needle in the Hay by Elliot Smith, Mad World. Uh, recently, I've thrown in some Phoebe Bridgers to just really bring the emotion up in the pitcher, so that they're distracted and sad that I'm here.
0: Didn't you have I Hurt Myself today? <laughs> oh yeah,
2: no, hurt, hurt Originally by Nine Inch Nails Covered by Johnny Cash is on the regular rotation (laughs)
3: i love it it's hard to do that underhand pitch when you're crying your eyes out exactly um so in 1981 she enrolled in the uh, university of mississippi her writing immediately caught the attention of willie morris when she was a freshman uh he hunted her down in the holiday inn bar one evening and he said to her quote my name is willie morris and i think you're a genius Mm-mm. So um, so this guy Morris basically recommended her, kind of bumped her up the ranks and got her at the age of 18 into this kind of graduate course on the short story. Um, and she's just immediately a star. She's like taking over the class and everyone thinks she's amazing. Um, she published her first novel, The Secret History in 1992. Um, and it was a huge, huge hit. Uh, Vanity Fair called Tartt a precocious literary genius. She was only 29 years old. Um, and then in 2002, her novel, The Little Friend, was first published in Dutch, uh, since her books sold more per capita in the Netherlands than anywhere else.
0: Huh. Well, you did skip over her college years, Toby. Did you research that at all?
3: Uh, No. Do you know anything that I don't? Oh, yeah.
0: I know that she went to Bennington College, which is very small, very, like, what would you say, hippie? I don't know how, how, (laughs) free-spirited...
2: There's not a lot of requirements.
0: Including clothing. But she
3: went. Oh, what? Is this a thing?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she went there at the same time as Brett Easton Ellis and Jonathan Lethem. And they were all like superstar writers Um, and then went on to have these amazing careers. Um, And there's there's an article, I don't know if it was in The Atlantic or something, that's, that's about their whole crew. Yeah. So yeah, so people think that that's what inspired The Secret History because it was also about like elite people at this college.
1: Hmm. Out of those list of writers, which one would probably have committed murder, Jonathan Lethem or Brett Easton Ellis? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, that's a head
3: scratcher. So in 2013, The Goldfinch uh, stirred reviewers as to whether it was a literary novel or not. Basically, because it sold so well, people said, nah, it's just a popular novel. It was also, as we've mentioned, turned into the movie The Goldfinch, which was reportedly uh, Tart was paid $3 million for the movie rights. But the movie was a big old stinker. Um, I don't think any of us have seen it. And it is a noted failure. But the trailer is dope. Um, And uh, she's known for spending 10 years, approximately on each novel so The next one might be rolling around sometime soon. Yeah, we do do for a tart. She's also known uh, as being a very stylish person. Um, She has a very kind of a trademark severe dark bob. She wears very snappy suits and cravats. Uh, She's very much kind of like if you were to draw like a cartoon of a very cool, very intense author, uh, you could draw her. Um, She uh, people have called her uh, reclusive. And I think maybe, you know, gauging by some of the other authors (laughs) that we've talked about in this podcast. She's not quite a recluse, um, but she does do less touring than than other people. And I have a quote here uh, that she told the Irish Independent. She says, Book tours are just distracting. It's better for me to be at home and getting on with my work than standing up and talking about a book. It's very counterproductive. I'd go mad if I had to go on a book tour every two years. I'd go completely berserk. I can just about handle it once every decade. Just because you don't go to a lot of literary galas and things doesn't make you reclusive. Joan Didion writes a beautiful essay about Howard Hughes, who was a lonely recluse, but also a kind of weird American hero who built the whole city of las vegas and joan didion said quote he's the last private man the dream we no longer admit and i thought that was funny because i think he ended up drinking expired milk and saving his fingernails that's like the thing i know about howard Howard hughes i
0: don't know that i would aspire to be howard hughes but i also like imagining that the reason she only has a book out every 10 years is not because she hasn't written them (laughs) but because she can only handle doing a book tour every 10 years so she has a stack of them just waiting
3: (laughs) she bangs them out in seven months Uh, well, that's all I have on Donna Tart. I'm pretty sure we're going to end up covering her. Is is anything else of hers on our to-read list? I have, I, don't remember. I have the little friend. You have the little friend, and I think I'm going to pick up the secret history to throw on mine
2: next you time should. I'm weak and shameful. Uh, that was just a tardy
3: little tease for you, Pejos, and uh, we'll get more into her life uh, the next time we're out. Ooh, nice. Sounds good. Thanks, Toby. Thanks, Toby. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Excellent. So that was The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Four feet. <laughs> Four happy feet. <laughs> oh
2: wait
1: oh my book's on fire bailey oh no. Bailey! what oh can no. you tell me about a book that's on fire
0: i can tell you it's a pleasure to burn
1: <laughs> we can tell you that it's at least 451 degrees <laughs>
0: <laughs> i read fahrenheit 451 this week by ray bradbury <laughs> fire 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 Whoa. burn baby burn <laughs> uh have you guys all read this one uh yes. yeah. I have not this one is often taught in high school, and I can see why if I were to teach again, I probably would teach it, as uh, critics said about my sister, the serial killer. It's a nice little hand grenade of a book. it's only a hundred and fifty pages, but it hits all the right notes, and there's a lot to discuss about it. That's my quick review. <laughs> All right. Facts. (laughs) So Fahrenheit 451, for those of you who haven't read it, um, it is a sci-fi novel. Um, It is set in a dystopian world where basically books are outlawed. So
1: what about podcasts about books?
0: Ooh, hard to say. (laughs) Good question. Um, So our lead character, Guy Montag, works as a fireman. But instead of putting out fires, he starts fires, specifically when people find books um, or libraries. And so they show up, you know, people ring the alarm and they show up and they're like, no don't take my books and then they burn down the books and the whole house and that's what they do because
3: books are not allowed i just had a vision of kind of the you know the alternate universe version of us where it's like the two burn list and right. they're like oh i've always wanted to burn a copy of the iliad but you know you never have the time in this case shame would actually get you killed
0: yeah it's like in, instead of will i keep it on my shelf it's will i keep it on my shelf or will i burn it in a <laughs>
3: And the answer is always, I will burn it with fire.
0: <laughs> and I alluded to this at first, but the first line is very memorable, which is, it was a pleasure to burn. Gets you right in there, right from the beginning. Thanks, Ray Bradbury. All right, so that's our setting. What's the inciting incident? <gasps> Guy Montag meets a lady.
2: Ooh. A lady.
0: <laughs> he meets a teen girl. I kind of wish she was older because I did get kind of the sense that Montag is interested in her. But maybe that was just my my creepy... Uh, interpretation.
3: No. He, that's he, he's a bit of a creep about it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. And this girl is named Clarice. Uh, and Clarice, sort of for the first time, makes Montag start to question why are we burning these books and like why are we in this world? Not only do they burn books, but they lose themselves in sort of like giant televisions. They're rooms that are surrounded by television screens, and they have in their ears what he calls seashells, which I think um, are very close to AirPods, um, and they're. Just just constantly surrounded by at what his wife Mildred calls like their quote family, but really it's just television. So Clarice kind of posits like, well, what if we didn't do that and instead we went outside? In so many words.
2: Okay, wait. Uh, no, c- counterpoint to Clarice, real quick. Yeah. I can take my AirPods and all my friends who are my only other podcasters <laughs> to listen to outside and go for a walk.
0: There there was <laughs> a line which specifically reminded me of EarPods, which is when um it's like uh Mildred was an expert at listening at the same time as she had her seashells in and I'm like, yeah, that that's me. Yeah. So Montag starts to question himself and basically he decides to take a book instead of burning a book. And that is the inciting incident. Things happen from there. It's weird to like spoil this book because it's, you know, a very famous book and you can I wouldn't say you can guess what happens, but you might know from popular culture references what happens. But that's the beginning. Um, Here's what I loved about the book. Ray Bradbury is an excellent writer. I had never read him before, even short stories. And I was just amazed by his turns of phrase. So here is an example. This is the description of Clarice. Page eight, the girl's face was there, really quite beautiful in memory, astonishing in fact. She had a very thin face like the dial of a small clock seen faintly in a dark room in the middle of the night when you waken to see the time and see the clock telling you the hour and the minute and the second. With a white silence and a glowing, all certainty in knowing what it has to tell you of the night passing swiftly on toward further darknesses, but moving also toward a new sun.
3: I'm amazed you guys, you guys both chose clock excerpts.
0: That's exactly what I thought when Andrew was giving his quote. I was like, oh, mine's about a (laughs) clock too. But it's like, I I just love it because it's like Donna Tartt where I know exactly the feeling of waking up and looking at a clock face, um, but I would never have used it to describe a person. And I love that just how he puts these two things together. All right. So the writing, definitely a happy foot. Another happy foot. I really love in dystopian or sci-fi novels where you can kind of see, because this one is written in what, nineteen. 1951, according to my. Yes. Yeah. So it's written how many years ago, 70 years ago. And yet he was able to predict some things that we have today. And even if we don't literally have firemen burning books, there is sort of an anti intellectualism that that goes on. Um, And this so it feels prescient, even though it was written so long ago. Um, I think it takes place in 2022, though. Oh, I remember seeing that date and I was like, uh oh!" or at least they reference 2022. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's <laughs> us. Uh, and so I liked that. I liked that in many ways it's a love letter to books and to knowledge. Um there's a line on page 48 I liked where Montag says, there must be something in books, things we can't imagine to make a woman stay in a burning house. There must be something there. You don't stay for nothing, which I think, you know, it's kind of obvious in a way that the metaphors and the symbolism at the same time. I liked it because I like books. I would go down yeah. with my books. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I would go down with my what? books.
1: <laughs> I would throw my hands up. Let the books have, burn. Andrew, you got to put that on the softball rotation. <laughs> That'll be the new ranking system. Is that, will you keep it on the shelf, or would you stay in a burning building for it?
0: yeah,
1: that's a different level.
0: <laughs> um, I also liked um, that the characters are so disconnected from their reality, even war and violence, where like they don't understand that a war is at their doorstep because they're so dialed into, you know, their television, their popular culture, which I feel like that's how we are. Like if you look around an elevator, everybody's on their phone. Nobody's looking at other people. I know I'm the first person to ever say this. And then uh, the last happy foot I'll say is I really liked the mechanical dog. Do you guys remember the mechanical dog? Yes. Mecha- I'm sorry, the oh, mechanical wow. hound.
3: Yep. Wow. I didn't remember it until you said that phrase. And then it just kind of exploded out of my brain.
2: I have not read this book. And I'm just imagining those like Radio Shack dogs that would bark twice and then flip. And that's all it does. <laughs> but
0: imagine that, but with more legs like a spider, and then out of its mouth comes a syringe.
2: Well, uh, that's haunting, and I don't like that. <laughs> mm. It's
0: exactly what Toby said. Like, when they're describing it, I'm like, oh, I'm never going to forget that. That's terrifying. Yeah,
1: God forbid we had robot dogs in 2022. Oh, wait. Oh, no.
0: Um, so, yeah. So, those are all my happy feet. And guess what? There's no sad feat. I really like this book. Uh,
3: wow. Whoa.
0: I know. It's only 150 pages. I read it essentially, like I could have read it in one sitting, but I split it into two. Really enjoyed it. And I could see myself reading it again. Would I stay in a burning building for it? I don't know. But I liked it. And I don't want to burn it. So, five stars. Nice. Uh, But yeah, Toby, do you remember what how many stars you would have given it?
3: Oh, yeah. Five stars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think... Uh, yeah, it's a great book. It's just, and it, it's really helped along by the fact that it's so short. I think if it had been like even thirty or forty pages longer, it would probably drop in quality. But there's just, you know, the ideas are so prescient and interesting, and the writing is so good. It's great.
2: Yeah, there are literally five Fahrenheit four fifty ones in the Goldfinch. I just did the math comfortably,
0: page count wise. Page yeah. count
2: wise. <laughs> oh wow.
3: Yeah. Oh,
0: boy. If you need a little break, if you need to up your Goodreads goal, I suggest it. Toby, tell me some facts on Mr. Ray Bradbury, because I think I like him.
3: Uh, he's a pretty boring guy. Psych, He's a weirdo. <laughs> Ray Douglas Bradbury, great middle name, was born on August 22nd, 1920, and he died on June 5th, 2012.
0: Is your middle name Douglas, Toby? I didn't know that.
3: Uh, Yes, that is my middle name. It's my dad's first name. He is an American author and screenwriter. Um, He was one of the most widely celebrated uh, writers of the 20th century. Um, he worked in fantasy see science fiction horror mystery and realistic fiction uh his biggest success what he's mainly known for is fahrenheit 451 uh, but he's also very famous for short story collections the martian chronicles and the illustrated man i've read those as well and i will say if you liked fahrenheit 451 100 check out the martian chronicles and the illustrated man i would say he's even better short story writer than he is a novel writer
0: wow cool
2: those are very popular in my like eighth grade library Th- that was like weirdly
3: the hot book everyone wanted was the Ray Bradbury short story collections I mean they're real good they're real good um he wrote a bunch of books which i won't list out here but he also consulted on screenplays and television scripts including moby dick and it came from outer space uh, many of his works were adapted into television and film productions as well as many comic books uh, the new york times called bradbury quote the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream so Ooh. big ups bradbury um so bradbury's family uh bounced around the midwest when he was growing up but eventually they settled in los angeles in 1934 when and bradbury was 14 years old um, and he would stick mostly around los angeles for the rest of his life um, the family arrived in la with only 40 dollars to their name which is the equivalent of 810 dollars in 2021 which paid for rent and food until his father finally found a job making wire at a cable company for 14 dollars a week um, and then they were able to stay in hollywood so that would be equivalent of 284 dollars a week in 2021 so pretty tight Bradbury attended Los Angeles High School, and he was active in the drama club. Uh, He often roller skated around Hollywood, searching for celebrities. Cool. Uh, So there's there's a lot of kind of lore surrounding Fahrenheit 451, but the big story that everyone kind of knows about it is that it was written in UCLA's Powell Library in a study room that had typewriters for rent. He wrote the original draft, which is called The Fireman, not as good a title, uh, which was 25,000 words long. Uh, It was later published at around 50,000 words under Fahrenheit 451, and it cost him a total of $9.80. He had to keep feeding nickels into the typewriter to pay so he could use it to type the book. That's almost a week's wages.
1: Fun fact, in my day job, we do a lot of videos for UCLA, and they still have that typewriter, but they don't show it to anybody. Why? They said, like, oh, we also have Ray Bradbury's typewriter. Can we see it? No.
3: Hmm. Hmm. It's on Mars. I have a quote from Bradbury here about his kind of commentary on his kind of legend as a science fiction writer, and it'll kind of give you maybe a little bit of insight into his personality. He says, first of all, I don't write science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451, based on reality. Science fiction is a depiction of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So Martian Chronicles is not science fiction. It's fantasy. It couldn't happen. You see, that's the reason it's going to be around a long time, because it's a Greek myth and myths have staying power.
0: So science fiction, it's only if it can happen?
3: I mean, according to Ray Bradbury.
0: But how do you know what can happen and can't happen, Ray Bradbury?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a very uh, decisive gentleman. Um, I think in that quote, you kind of get a little bit of a hint of curmudgeonness. <laughs> you get a little bit of a hint of a kind of ego, and he had a lot of that. You know, he's a genius, but yeah, kind of an intense dude. So I have another. I have another quote here. Um, Ray Bradbury eventually became. I think "luddite" is too strong of a term, but he, you know, his kind of fears about where technology could take us are, are very clear in Fahrenheit Four Hundred and Fifty One. But this is a quote of his about kind of the way the world was changing. He says. In writing the short novel Fahrenheit 451, I thought I was describing a world that might evolve in four or five decades. But only a few weeks ago, in Beverly Hills one night, a husband and wife passed me, walking their dog. I stood staring after them, absolutely stunned. The woman held in one hand a small cigarette-package-sized radio, its antenna quivering. From this sprang tiny copper wires, which ended in a dainty cone plugged into her right ear. There she was, oblivious to man and dog, listening to far winds and whispers and soap opera cries, sleepwalking, helped up and down curbs by a husband who might just as well not have been there. This was not fiction.
0: It's called a Walkman, Ray Bradbury. Like, come on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it was a, a bit dramatic um, about modern technology. So his writing, his writing career, his life, uh, he says, was sparked by an encounter when he was a very young boy with a carnival magician, Mr. Electrico, in 1932. Uh, he watched a performance. And at the end of it, Mr. Electrico reached out to the 12-year-old Bradbury, touched him with his energy-charged sword, and commanded, Live forever. And Bradbury said later, I decided that was the greatest idea that I'd ever heard. I started writing every day and never stopped. I'm sorry, he didn't say write forever. <laughs> No, no. Ray Bradbury decides what that means. Uh, Well, I only have one final fact for you here, and it's a very fun fact, which is Bradbury's short story, The Rocket Man, from The Illustrated Man, inspired the hit song of the same name. Uh, Lyricist Bernie Taupin said he was so enthralled by the way the story portrayed the work of the astronauts as an everyday job that he, quote, took the idea and ran with it. His songwriting partner, Elton John, heard of him, apparently loved the lyrics and the tune came quickly. Quote, it was a pretty easy song to write the melody to, he said. It's a song about space. So it's quite a spacious song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rocket man.
3: <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what I got on Ray Bradbury.
0: That's great. I love it. And I did keep singing that Rachel Bloom song in my head as I read the book. You know, if you know, you know, otherwise, why don't you Google it on your own? Not safe for work. That is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Five stars. Nice. Andrew, do you have any fun games for us?
2: I do. Well, I only have one fun game. Is that okay?
0: Fine. Okay.
2: Okay. Do you have 451 games for us? Ooh, that would be fun, but take forever. So the game this week, only one of them, is called Whoops, The Art Is Broken. Uh, the uh, the the inspiration here is art, theft, missing art, and also destruction of art, which is sort of a synergy between the two books. Mm. And so the way this game is going to work um, is I'm going to give you the name of a piece of art that is either destroyed or missing along with the date it was either destroyed or lost. So you get the the title of the work, the artist, um, and then uh, the date that this painting or statue or whatever either was destroyed or was removed. And I want you to say what you think happened to it. Ooh. Oh, so make it up. And here are your parameters. Okay. Closest answer to what actually happened gets a point, And that's guaranteed for each round. If someone gets the exact answer, they get three points. If someone like tickles my fancy, whatever, there's half points available for creativity.
3: Mm. Nice.
2: We're going to have five rounds of this. We'll do them really quickly. But I think you guys are going to are, are going to astound me here. Are okay. you ready? Yeah. First one, little artist, you may have heard of him, called Leonardo da Vinci. He had Ooh. a model called Leonardo's Horse, which was created around 1482. It was either destroyed or stolen in 1499. What do you think happened? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say uh, somebody tried to ride it and it broke. <laughs> All right. I love the answer. I love the answer. Bailey.
0: I'm going to say that Leonardo's friend, um, Michelangelo, who was a party dude, came in and accidentally (laughs) knocked it over and it shattered.
3: Did he have a slice of pizza in his hand? Yeah. Yeah. I'd also like to add, Andrew, if, if in case this is like, you know, exactly what happened. The person who broke it said, yee-haw, and then it broke. Even though the phrase yee wouldn't be around for like another 300, 400 years. Yeah,
0: but Michelangelo said cowabunga, so.
3: Okay, got it. Now, it
2: may surprise you to realize that neither of these is actually what happened. Aww. However, these Aww. are both, both great answers. So what I'm going to do is award the point to Bailey. Yes. Mm. because despite michelangelo being a party dude it was destroyed by sort of um a mob or uh the, a french invading force when the french invaded milan in 1499 uh so somebody coming in and destroying it versus a friend trying to ride it i feel like is is mm. closer but toby will get a half point because i like the idea of somebody saying yeehaw for the very first time <laughs> mm.
0: Thank we're you. at a Thank point
2: you. to a half point right now excellent all right, next up. Well, let's let's see and check in with that party dude, Michelangelo. He made a statue of Pope Julius II around 1492. In 1511, something happened. What?
0: Okay, so his friend Donatello, kind of the leader of the group, decided <laughs> it would be really funny to pick up the statue and have it like poke through a window to surprise Michelangelo when he came out of the shower. But accidentally, he dropped it and it broke.
1: Leonardo's the leader.
2: Okay,
3: I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, no, you have. It is on record. Um, I'm going to say that um, a guy came along and he tried to ride on the sh- uh, statue's sh- shoulders, and he tried to say "yeehaw," and, and it didn't work, and then he broke the statue. Oh!
0: Right,
3: I'm really glad that the next couple things are paintings <laughs> because you're a monster. I mean, you're going to watch me say someone tried to ride a painting. <laughs>
2: Uh, Bailey, for consistency, sure you can have a half point. Toby, you technically do get a point because it was a mob. The people of Bologna rose up and destroyed yes. it. So I'm guessing Pope Julius II had did something wrong. I didn't do the research on that part. So we're tied at one and a half points each. Congratulations! Excellent! Yay! Moving right along, Raphael had a painting. Called the portrait of a young man that he created in either fourteen. <laughs> I hate that this is Raphael because I know where you're going. Uh, he painted between fifteen thirteen and fifteen fourteen. In nineteen thirty nine, something happened to it. What is it? Well, there's this giant rat. No, no,
0: that's mine. His his
2: name is (laughs) His name is Splinter, and he came along and he chewed it all up. Okay, chewed apart by a rat named Splinter. Okay,
0: (laughs) there's this giant rat named Splinter who's a part of the SS who destroyed it during during World War (laughs) Two.
3: Yeah, they don't they don't cover that part in *Mutant Ninja Turtles*. That, but you kind of know. You kind of know all right moving right along and not digging deeper
2: into that (laughs) bailey is closer it was stolen during the nazi plunder of poland um it is actually to date the most famous slash valuable missing painting that exists
0: Mm. cool
2: there are several things that are also detailed as priceless a lot of articles listed this as like the most famous plundered painting Mm. so bailey you get a point because you stole bailey's bit you do not get a half point for this toby (laughs) i thought it was i thought that was extra funny but you are still very close to her it's two and a half points to one and a half points right now got it got it all right two more left i'm i really think we're going to get to some we're really going to test bailey's knowledge of teenage mutant ninja turtles <laughs> or we're going to get some creative answers here guido Reni created a work of art called bacchus and ariadne uh, It's a sculpture um i don't have the exact date of the creation of it but it was destroyed by 1799 and it was created uh about
3: 100 years before that if not slightly longer okay i have a i have a serious theory um i think it 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 was fed into a machine that cut it up into long strips. The name of that machine is a shredder.
0: <laughs> they don't have machines in of
3: <sighs> <sighs> <Fairly. laughs>
0: Okay, um... What's the name of the girl?
2: April O'Neil. Okay, no, so no, she shouldn't get a point for this. She doesn't know the name of April O'Neil.
0: Okay, never mind. There's only
2: one other character I know from this, and if it's probably going to
0: come up in the next one. All right, Bacchus and Ariadne. Okay, so Bacchus, this girl named April O'Neil came in <laughs> and covered the painting with wine. You know, the god of wine, and then spiders, which is like Ariadne, and that's how it was destroyed. Thank you. All
2: right, I don't want to give anybody any points for this because <laughs> neither of you are correct. I think technically Bailey is closer, and I did say that there was always a point up for uh, up for grabs. Though actually, I know, here's what we're going to do for this. There is a point up for grabs. You are both equally incorrect, so we're going to give you each a half point on this. Yes. What actually happened is it was inherited by a widow who didn't like that it had female nudity in it, so she destroyed all the nude bits. Oh, wow. And to the point where it doesn't exist anymore. And I guess you guys both sort of touched on that. Not Not at all. So... Do we even want to do this? Or are you guys going to, do you guys know any more characters from, from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I guess we'll find out. I won't,
0: I won't do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 in the next one.
2: <laughs> All right. Final one. This is a work by Vittore Carpaccio. Uh, it has a longer title than this, but we're going to call it Virgin and Child. It was created in the 1500s and it was destroyed in about the 1700s. There's not an exact date that I could find on this, but it was destroyed well after the creation of the art. So not like immediately around Carpaccio's day. This
3: is a painting or a sculpture or what?
0: Um, I think it was on the wall of a building and somebody, I won't say who, threw nunchucks at it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess that it was um, a, a statue um, and it um, th- a monster who was just a brain in a floating jar in the middle of the sky. His name was Krang. He jumped on it and tried to ride it like a horse and he broke the statue. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say anything during that? Yeah. He said, yeehaw. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. He said, yeehaw. <laughs>
2: I forgot about Crang. To be fair, I thought you were going to bring up Casey Jones. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So what actually happened is it was bought by the British National uh, Gallery. Oh, it's an altarpiece, so it was a painting. Um, it was bought by the National Gallery in London, and then the ship sank across the English Channel, and it sunk to the bottom, and it's gone forever,
3: Ooh. like a brain in a in a jar so who's
2: closest here baileys was just sort of lazy toby you get the point because you at least talked about it being destroyed and also yes. so that there is a winner toby it pains me to say i'm also going to give you a half <gasps> point for creativity by surprising me with krang so you win three yes. and a half points to three well done you have won this Crang,
0: game Crang, whoops Crang. the art
3: is broken <laughs> yes
0: Good job, Toby. Big Good ups. Good job.
3: Oh, thank you. Andrew, that was a great game. I'm sorry. I, I create these worlds for you to play in
2: and I can't control how you play. And this is a beautiful way to do it. Ah.
0: I really want pizza now. Michelangelo. Great game. Loved it. Now's the time where we let Dylan out from his sewer where he <laughs> lives as a giant rat. Uh-huh. And he gets to pick uh-huh. books at random from our shelf. It's time for the choosing.
1: The choosing. Hey, Andrew, I appreciate your game. In fact, your games are like my third favorite thing. Mm. Uh, I guess the choosing is my second favorite thing, but my favorite thing is number 22. My favorite thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. <sighs> yes.
3: Finally! Finally! Been, uh, this, is,
2: nice. Pages, this is a book that I've been really excited to read and specifically have put off reading because I knew we could do it on the podcast. And finally, I get, get to read it. I'm very excited. Thank you, Dylan, for pulling this book.
0: And just so people know, it's an awesome graphic novel. That's all we'll say. No other spoilers, but it's really good. And maybe part two will come out and surprise us, just like Donna Tart*. You never yeah. know. Um, Dylan, what about me?
1: Billy, who are you talking to?
0: Talking to you, my husband.
1: Billy, you've never been married. What? I've been made up this whole time. I'm it's kind of similar to number 36, Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chomsky.
0: Ooh. Totally um, didn't throw me off with that introduction at all. Didn't question my whole (laughs) life. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm excited. This is a horror book that came out a few years ago. Um, The author is best known for Perks of Being a Wallflower, which I liked. So I don't know. I like horror books, so I'm all for it. Cool. All right. Well, that means in two weeks on the podcast, I'll be reading Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chomsky and Toby's reading Consider Phlebas by Ian M. Banks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List podcast.
3: Uh, If you happen to live in a dystopian society where giving podcasts good reviews is forbidden, I'm going to have you break the law. I'm going to request that you go on your podcatcher of choice, rate us five stars, write us a review. It's especially helpful on Apple iTunes. Uh, It really helps boost the visibility of the podcast and it really warms our hearts. Literally, if we get a new review, one of us will see it and we'll text it to each other and we will all be like, that's so great. So imagine it we could you could be talking to us
2: and another way you can help us find new listeners specifically if you've perhaps been hoarding a piece of art your entire life and you know you have maybe one or two confidants about it uh you could tell those confidants or any friends and family uh to check out our podcast because word of mouth is actually our number one way of finding new listeners um and we would really appreciate it and return the art
3: (laughs) (laughs)
0: thanks to toby and andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me to dylan for sound recording and to miss jillian beth turkey for composing our intro song see you in two weeks happy reading. Books,
2: books, 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 books. books.